preacher for the seventh Sunday of slash after Epiphany. I'm Pastor Matt Gale. And I'm Zach Paris. I'm the pastor of uh, something in Boulder, Colorado. And uh, yeah, we're discussing. We're we're like we're deep in Epiphany now. We're actually actually approaching the end of this time after slash of Epiphany. We too deep. In too deep. Uh, we're still working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We're in part what four? Part four of the Sermon on the Mount. Must be. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Hey, fun fact. Uh, this is where it's going to cut us off of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be done. Thank God. Sermon on the Mount. But guess what? It returns very uh, soon on Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. That little excerpt from chapter six in Matthew, actually the next thing in the Sermon on the Mount. So, hey, if you got a theme going, you can actually uh, continue it on Ash Wednesday. When you're in Matthew, look behind you because that's where the Sermon on the Mount's going to be. Exactly. Exactly. Um, hey, Matt, I have yeah. a question for you. Yes. What? Uh, I noticed you furiously updating your Facebook all night last night. Uh, yeah. I watched the Grammys for about 90 seconds. I saw Adele uh, win Song of the Year. Uh, it's the Vinyl Preacher. I think we need to report. What are your take? What's, what was your take on, on Grammys 2K17? Well, uh, I watched like three quarters of it, except for the part where I had to rush out and buy saline drops for my infant daughter because uh i had to go do it right then mm-hmm. but um but yeah the grammys are always just an absolute mess like chris was asking me what who are the grammys for and she doesn't understand they're not like they don't know who they're for. like they're just they're always a complete mess but if you embrace it if you just embrace the mm-hmm. glorious the glorious like mess insanity that the grammys are uh it is just wonderful for snark watching you want to hate watch something <laughs> The Grammys are just, they're just made for it. And then every once in a while, like in the midst of all like the horribleness, you get like an amazing performance. Like Beyonce turned in this like ridiculous performance, pr- fully pregnant. Uh, and like with these, like these, like, it was like Catholic iconography, like going on. She had these like halos and all these dance. It was like, yeah, it was incredible. And I was like, how in the world is she going to perform at Coachella in two months when she's pregnant? Uh, with twins, and that's how that's how she's gonna do it. It's, it's just it's amazing. divine intervention. Is how uh, she's gonna do it? It's incredible. And then, uh, by the way, Beyonce also. Um, I'm gonna let you finish, Adele. But Beyonce, <laughs> Beyonce had the album of the year uh, in real life. But the Grammys giving it to Adele was completely predictable because that's mm-hmm. that's what they do. I mean, they're like, oh, this is oh my, it's like a white singer songwriter. Oh, that's clearly the best. Music Are you? There is in the world are you gonna let producer greg finish though because the grammys did not let adele's producer greg finish and i want producer nick to know that when we win grammys <laughs> we he'll go first and, and we'll get cut off that's our promise they should get grammys for podcasts it's true right? yeah so um that's the grammys this glorious mix of uh, art and uh weird mashup like it's like, oh, that's what they are. So you know how people are always talk about intergenerational ministry. Mm. The Grammys are like the worst form of intergenerational <laughs> ministry possible because they're always trying to take like an old artist and a new artist and like mash them together in a way that never works like at all. Like it's always just awful. Bee Gees so last night, right? Yeah. Well, that was uh, yeah a whole other thing. 
<laughs> so um, anyway, that was that was the Grammys. Beyonce though, wow, she's on another level right now. She's just on another level. So that's what was going on in my context. <laughs> What's happening in your context? Oh man, I'm getting ready to to hit the road. Uh, we got a big retreat this weekend. Turned into a big thing. Uh, we got like 40 college students, 40, 50 college students are going to be up at uh, Rainbow Trail in the Sangre de Cristos, the Blood of Christ Mountains in southern Colorado. So I'll be doing that soon. Uh, we're, we're kicking the tires, refiring back up the old pub lick theology, lick in parentheses tonight. Uh, the topic with a conversation on atonement uh, theories. Basically, it's a way for me to backdoor into talking about Gerard all night. Uh, Matt, what's your favorite atonement theory? My favorite atonement theory. Well, uh, when I was in seminary, it was I, we had to write a paper on this, and Ooh. I opted for the Christus Victor. Mm. It's a good one. Atonement theory, which, uh, as I recall, is that the love of Christ is so overwhelming that it redeems the world. Mm-hmm. A little less of the sacrificial, a little more of the I don't know. Yeah. Power, power of love, kind of, kind of deal. What's yours? I like to write out. I think atonement theory is one of the helpful things to think about with them is that it's not an either or. It's not a uh, more like a buffet line. You can get a little mashed potatoes and some beans and uh, you can mix and match like you'd like. I like Christus Victor in a very cosmic sense. I do some of my nerd stuff around uh, the cross of the event being such a literally massive thing that it draws all time and space to it like a black hole. And then, of course, I like the Girardian Bruce, that the, the Christ is a sacrifice not to God but to us um, mm. because we demand the sacrifice. And, and the mm. judo bullfighter pulls us into a, a fullness and a, a wholeness that we kick and scream against with everything we got. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Also, Matt, so you guys are going to be talking about that. We are going to be talking about that. But also in my context this weekend, Matt, uh, yeah. I went to a concert. Yeah, you went to see Dawes. How, I saw how Dawes, and, and there's some things you need to know, okay? I want to set it up, okay? It was at the Fox Theater, and the Fox Theater is the most college theater venue in Boulder uh, to see music. Normally, it's advertising, I assume they're bands, but musical acts of some kind who I've never heard of. There are letters and no vowels. It's either some sort of Polish group or, like, or I'm guessing, like, I don't know, EDM or something, right? And so I was worried about the fact that this was going to be at the Fox because I thought at 33 years old, I would be the oldest person there by at least 10 years. Um, And I was worried about that. Hannah and I, we got the babysitter, did dinner, headed up to get there when the doors open at 8.30. Get there, Mm -hmm. line down the block. (laughs) Two blocks were lined up waiting. But it was a line of the oldest people I've ever seen in this part of town before. And we were we were below average. And the best news was there are no seats in the Fox. Yeah. There are no seats in this venue because, uh, again, EDM, college students. But the old people who rushed in first grabbed the walls and all the things you could lean against. And so nobody was in the front. <laughs> and so we were up against the stage, which was so much fun. It was so fun that uh, we were in front of the, they tour with a, with a guitarist and we were right in front of that dude, right in front of his amp. And so I'm going to hear the guitar line to all the songs for the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, but we had a really yeah. cool scene where his amp went out in the road, like is diving on the floor in front of us, like plugging and unplugging things and like crazy in the middle of a <laughs> 
song and his craziness. Yeah. My wife loves me dearly uh, because uh, she acquired the set list. And so he came home with the set list. What? So that was pretty cool. Dawes is a really fun, I mean, they're dad rock and stuff, right? But they're a really fun band to be a fan of because unlike your, like, U2s, I get to have, like, really personal, not really personal, but, like, close encounters and, like, yeah, get to be really close and all that kind of stuff. Right. And, yeah. and yet it's not like I'm at a at an open mic uh, for three people who nobody cares about either, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's a good sign for a band to be at. No Mandy Moore sightings. No Mandy Moore sightings. Is Mandy Moore... Taylor, the lead singer for Dawes, is dating Mandy Moore. What? <laughs> <laughs> so they're... Is that like a... Is that a good description of like how big they are? The, like that's the level of celebrity? They're... Yeah, I mean, I think... Yes. Mm-hmm. I think they're... I mean, they've been... The hipster, like, I think L.A. sort of, like, insider cool band for a long time now because they're – I got really excited when they, they had a cameo on Parenthood and Dax, like, freaks out because it's Dawes and, like, he's working on Sonny Dawes <laughs> and stuff, right? Again, Parenthood is, like, the dad rock version of television. That sounds awesome. I know that – I know Dawes best from the time that they did a song with the Killers. Mm, that's a Christmas good one. in L.A., which is uh, – one of our favorites. <laughs> they didn't. They did not play Christmas in LA, but they did play Time Spin in Los Angeles, mm. uh, which is another good song, right? Time Spin in Los Angeles. Uh, you got that special kind of sadness, that special kind of charm that only comes from Time Spin in Los Angeles. Makes me want to wrap you in my arms. That's good. That's um, good. Sometimes my friends don't seem to know me without my suitcase in my hand. That's good. That'll be good for you this week when you're traveling. Oh my gosh. I will blast it the entire time. He has a whole, he knows me, right? Taylor is in my John Green, like group of people who like, we would we'd be great friends. Uh, we just need like the low pressure, like setting for us to become friends, you know, got another single called from a window seat, which isn't describing a trip on an airplane. Right. So I could play from a window seat. It's perfect traveling music. We could continue talking about Dawes, Matt, or we could dive into the IRS uh, tax code for clergy. We could. We could do. Uh, we could do any of those amazing things. I'm trying to think if there's anything else happening at my church on Sunday. I think it's pretty much a typical Sunday, although we are um, continuing to overlay Black History Month uh, within the service. It's. I mean, it's interesting. I know it's. Uh, it's not technically a liturgical month, but I think if you're in a black church or even I think in probably a multicultural church, it it sort of gets overlaid in uh, some really interesting ways and becomes like a. I don't know, like it overlaps with the season. And I think there's value to that if you do it, if you do it right. So we are also um, thinking about that this month. You can think about W.E.B. Uh, W.E.B. D-Boys. <laughs> I, I heard about that a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. I did drop a Frederick Douglass uh, reference last week. And some people really enjoyed that. <laughs> But uh, yeah, can we yeah. get Freddie? So can we get Freddie D on the pod? <laughs> He's being recognized more and more, man. More, more and more. He would be recognized even more if he was a guest on our podcast. Friend of the pod. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we're um, we've got this uh, this passage from Matthew, Sermon on the Mount. It's uh, it's really like a continuation of last week. It seems like it's again Jesus saying, "You have heard." Uh, X, Y, or Z from the law, but I say to you, and then he takes it uh, deeper and more radical um, and maybe even closer to the heart uh, of the of the law and not the letter of the law. So 
but this time, even I think even more uh, really radicalizes things to the point where probably the most famous line uh, in today's gospel is "Love your enemies." And pray for those of Prisca. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Um, so, yeah, what do you think? What do you think about this? Matthew 5, 38 to 48. I think that this week's reading is kind of like Back to the Future 2, mm. right? But last week was Back to the Future 1. Uh, and we continue. It's the same thing. Right, it's the same story. It's got more. Yeah. It's considered more of a classic. I think we got eye for an eye here. We've got uh, giving your coat away. We've got yeah. loving, uh, loving your enemy. Uh, mm-hmm. But same story. Uh, mm-hmm. Hopefully, next week we won't go to Back to the Future three. Um, but if but if I were making the lectionary, I'd have wrapped it all together uh, because one of the things that came up for us in our Sunday night discussion was the, that our students had some difficulty with getting into the text because there are a number of, of barriers, in particular the, the words around uh, divorce. Um, yeah. Made it very, very difficult for them to get past uh, what Jesus plainly seems to be saying about divorced women. And so I spent a lot of time talking about social science and feuding and honor and shame and all that kind of stuff. But for the very simple reason that you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, I think that fits so well with what, what he said last week uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, just a few verses before this, where he says to poke your own eye out. And actually, eye for an eye came up in our conversations. I'm not smart enough to read ahead, so I didn't know that, like, hey, <laughs> it's coming up. It's coming up next week. Yeah, that's a really good connection, an eye for an eye. Poke your own eye out. Yeah, so much of this is, I mean, it's contextual, but it's also, you've got to take into account the power dynamics that are going on, right? Both in that divorce text, but also here with some of this, some of these passages that can be taken, like in so many, so many different ways. I think one of the dangers about this text is that it can seem like it's purely about submission, right? Like just, uh, just take it. Somebody's going to go after you, just take it, you know, just take injustice, just accept it. And I mean, you can take it that way. Uh, I think if you tried to read it in a vacuum or if you tried to read it through certain eyes. But some of the more interesting readings of this that I've heard, I know when I was, uh, I think especially when I was in Mexico and we were studying some liberation theology, one uh, interpretation of this, these three, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, if anyone wants to get your coat, forces you to go one mile, is that it's really a form of creative resistance, a creative nonviolent resistance, right? If someone strikes you on the right cheek, if you turn the other cheek, I mean, that's not like turning away, that's like standing up straight so that they can see your face, right? They're going to have to like look you in the eye um, right after they've slapped you in the face. Uh, so it's a form of nonviolent resistance. So they want to see you and take your coat. Well, if you take off the rest of your clothes, now you're naked. Now you just shame that person that tried to take your coat. Um, if anyone forces you to go one mile, uh, you're just going to keep on going uh, and just take it to this ridiculous extreme to show how ridiculous uh, the oppressor is being. Um, and so like, I, I think it can also be taken as that like, creative resistance, right? Nonviolent resistance uh, in a really creative way. Uh, Melina and Rohrbaugh have some interesting stuff, right? Continuing in all yeah. the, the social science stuff. And, and I always find the social science stuff very interesting. Um, the temptation for me is to go way deep into it. But I think for for something like this, for this kinds of parts of the Sermon on the Mount that, that, that feel like very explicit ethical advice, you need a lot more context than... Jesus isn't talking to you. He's talking to someone in a very specific time and place. And that some of the really interesting stuff this week from Melina and Rohrbaugh is that they talk about the feudal nature 
of Mediterranean society, Mediterranean society, and not feudal as in like medieval peasants and stuff, right? Uh, but as in like feuding. I talked to my students about it last night and none of them had seen it because I'm old. And I remember on one of the first or probably second tours of duty that I did on Netflix, I watched a show about your home state called The Wild Whites of West Virginia. Have you seen that what? documentary? No. Uh, so it's two families, both last name White. They also happen to be white. <laughs> happen to be white in West Virginia. You're not going to believe it. But they've had like a, a century-long sort of uh, Hatfields and McCoy style feud, and their feud is ongoing. The whole sort of like shoot-on-sight kind of thing between those yeah. families, and the documentary uh, details it. And so what Melina and Rora say that for a Mediterranean male, it's very easy to have enemies. And so, so, so Jesus is speaking directly to them. What they say that this whole this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount is about is about developing sort of tools to avoid those feuds and avoid intensifying them. And so in particular here, where it looks like with our kind of American individualistic classes, maybe Jesus is just calling us to be really submissive to to whatever and just take it. What they say is that it's that yes, it's it's calling you away from that direct participation in it, but it's but that's done with the understanding that they actually have this kind of funny story in their in their notes about how our our vision of like a barroom fight between like two like super testosterone dudes while everybody watches uh, is not how that would have gone down in the midi in the Mediterranean, uh, and that instead people wouldn't let people fight like that. Everybody would jump in and make it hmm. not happen. And so along the lines of what you're saying, that the submissiveness is Jesus is calling a person to submission with the understanding that the community is going to jump in. And so I think it's both those things, right? Like that it's a shaming of the other person, but that it makes reconciliation much easier when yeah. that honor shame stuff is, is, is a community thing and not a me and you thing. And only has two kind of poles. It gets, it gets diffused a bit across the community. Yeah. And maybe, I mean, thinking off the top of my head, I mean, if that's, if you think about some of the, the nonviolent, nonviolent resistance of the civil rights movement. I mean, that was kind of the intent of it, right? Is to generate this moral clarity for the wider community in a way that would make reconciliation mm-hmm. actually possible. I think it's interesting though, too, because you mentioned like that it's, um, we've got a lot of ethical instruction in the Sermon on the Mount. And so it's a challenge for, for a Lutheran preacher that wants to have this uh, simple good news line. That's all about what God is doing. Right. Like that's what we want to do. Right. We want to at least have that and like have the ethical stuff be at a minimum. But like as I, I, I usually like to look in the text for like a, a really clear line with with like Jesus or God as a subject line. There's not really one here. Like it's always like, hey, you do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And I'm like, well, that's like this is a lot of pretty clear ethical instructions. So where yeah. do you uh, where's the. Yeah, I know you're gonna. You're about to. You're about to tell me where I'm wrong. So, Tom, like, where do you see God acting in the midst of this? Um, what seems to be, I'll say it that way. What seems to be ethical instruction? Seems to be very clear ethical instruction, but I think there's some trouble with with spreading it out over two months. That you can boil down a verse or two, and it looks very clear what Jesus is, Jesus is saying. Do this. But I think when you zoom out a bit, it starts to become a little ridiculous, right? Just listen to how the reading for this week ends. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. A couple of weeks ago, we ended with, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. This is ethical advice. I think God wants us to do these things. But here's where I'm going to turn is, right? 
God wants us to do these things because these are the things that God is doing. We talk about atonement theories. The cross, death, and resurrection is an incredibly submissive act, right? Perhaps ultimately submissive. Last week's reading, this is week three, I think, right? Ended with yes, yes, or no, no. That's the only answers you can give. And that we know that life, the life that we're faced with, and that in the context of divorce in particular, divorce, horribly painful, is not the outcome that anyone expects or thinks is the, the best outcome uh, on the wedding day. And yet in the gray and the murkiness of the world, sometimes it is the best option. We have competing needs. Our world is not black and white. We can't answer yes, yes, and no, no. Yeah, and I think even here, I mean, I think that's, um, I think you get it, right? Like these are the things that God is doing. And so you do them as a, as a response that is a reflection of that. And I think that's even embedded I, and I think I think you're right to say that too, right? When you spread it out over many weeks, you sort of lose sight of the, I don't know, the overall movement. But even in this passage, some of that is embedded within it. Um, we see the word father in here twice, and we see the word youth, so that you may be children of your father in heaven. And so you kind of have to, you kind of have to restructure it a bit. Um, but the reason that you're living in these uh, ethical instructions is because of your identity. Mm-hmm. As a child, as yeah. a child of the Father, right? You're a child of God, sealed with the Holy Spirit, and marked on the cross of Christ forever. Uh, and that identity sounds is familiar. Forever. I don't know where because, it comes from, though. Right, and because of that identity, then this is the path that you that you lead. But it's rooted in that identity, right? That that baptismal identity. I think the other part to not forget to zoom out and get a little context on is we're continuing what I think is a, a, a fairly severe critique of the religious leaders of the day. We're continuing the call and the kind of uh, liturgical refrain from last week. You have heard it said, but I say to you, and I think I don't want to read too much into things, but why not? Because it's not responsible. February 18th, which is Saturday, is the anniversary, the date of, uh, of the, the death of, of this Martin Luther person. And if I can project myself onto Luther, I would say that Luther had a severe anxiety issue. Uh, going into the crisis, right? Uh, according to the story, the legend, and the writings, and all that kind of stuff, I'm no Luther expert and don't really ever want to be one, but really preoccupied with keeping, with being perfect, with righteousness, that it feels on one hand, right, like that, that maybe this is more than just direct ethical advice, but direct ethical advice, advice where Jesus is really laying out the absurdity of this is the bare minimum of of what's expected of you. That if you want to, like he's, like we, I mean, again, touching on last week, going back to the heart, heart transplant, if you're going to follow the law, this is what it requires of you. Um, yeah. If you're going to justify yourself and your existence in this way, this is the only way to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's the most offensive stuff ever. Yeah, it's a, man, I guess hearing these phrases, it's <laughs> comparing this with, pairing this with the Old Testament reading, which once again is uh, about loving the neighbor as yourself, including the outsider, right? Again and again, the poor and the alien. You can get the word alien in there. Mm. In light of uh, everything that's going on in our world, including this continued ethic of, well, self-protection is our first priority, right? Like right. That's, that's totally cool. Like that makes sense. It's rational. And yet Jesus's instruction here, like seems to really fly in the face of that to say, well, no, uh, you've, yeah, you've heard it said, protect yourself first. But I say to you, uh, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I think what I think it's a, it's, it's a real, it's a real countercultural challenge, I think, to where we're at. And I think that, I think we've got to, we've got to hold to that, like that Lutheran anthropology that I think 
part of the thing that we're wrestling with in the world is uh, is really a theological heresy that like the evil is located outside of ourselves, right? Like it's mm. all about like we can't let these people into the country with this weird understanding. Like there's no nothing can rise from within the country. Like that's mm-hmm. that's insane, right? Like and it's based on this anthropology that like there's us and them, and there's good people and bad people, and that the evil, the enemy, the enemy is always out there right outside of ourselves. Whereas our, our Lutheran anthropology, I think a, uh, a more faithful theological anthropology says that, well, no, the enemies within us too, within our own community and also within each of us. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how do we live within that tension? I feel like that's relevant. And I think that kind of an understanding of our identity as this really mixed bag in which we're, I don't know, redeemed only in our, only by being, brothers and sisters of one another, children of the father. I don't know. Right. Like it's that I think somehow we've got to retain the countercultural power of this like radical ethic while at the same time saying with this Lutheran anthropology of like, we're yeah, like this is like, there's no way that we're going to be perfect in living this out. Right. Or our salvation and our salvation is not dependent on us living this out. I think you've got to somehow establish the depravity, (laughs) the enemy within, right. That the enemy lies within, that we're redeemed in our baptismal identity and that we're then called um, or made to rather than called to, but for, like reformed recreated uh, to live this really countercultural life that doesn't necessarily fit into the ethic of empire of the empire. If that makes sense. I don't know. I'm constructing it on the fly. I'm doing some, some theological, what do you call it? Constructive theology on the fly. Constructive theology. Yeah. I mean, I think like we hear most ethical advice, uh, in the Bible, we hear this as instructions or things that, that I need to do. But also, right, like I think what you're saying is we shouldn't skip over the part where we read ourselves in this uh, reading as the enemy. I'm, I'm feeling drawn back to, to atonement theory and Girard in particular. That I think a piece of this, how I want to read Girard into it is to say that if you're going to get in, if you need to be involved in feuds, then engage in that with God. Because if this is a description of what God is doing, God will take it. God will turn the other cheek. But in that, you will be made whole. Yeah, I think what the radical ethic does, having this radical ethic, this is like, this is a function of the law, which I'm calling the radical ethic. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, Um, that's a way cooler name for it than the law. (laughs) Right? Radical dude. We have Uh, some rabbis we need to talk to first. But after that, I think we're going to green light the new... The radical ethic. So the radical ethic lays bare just how much we fall short, which is not only usually we we do that really individualistically. Right. We say, like, how much we as individuals fall short. And that's true. But it also lays bare in a time such as this, how much the empire falls short, because we want to be able to say, no, no, like our mm-hmm. like this is what our country is supposed to do. Well, no, like God's God's vision for the kingdom is actually way beyond that. So, no, you shouldn't be proud of yourselves. For, for doing this, right? Like, so it lays bare how much we fall short as individuals, but also how our community falls short, how our nation falls short, how, our, you know, right? Like it, it goes out from there, right? Am I, am I on something there? I think so. I mean, I, I, the, there's even a little more social science for you. The go a mile, go two miles piece here uh, is a military allusion uh, to carrying the, the equipment, the, the weapons of a soldier. Uh, the Romans could just make you do that if they, wanted to um 
And so they're saying, right, if, if a Roman soldier makes you carry their stuff yeah. uh, and asks you, tells you to do it for a mile, do it for two miles. Yeah. Um, I was just listening. I listened to podcasts, Matt. I don't know if you're into podcasts. Uh, to, to Pod Save America, uh, uh, one of our, our – we do a lot of yeah. cross, crossover episodes with, with, with Pod Save America, which we should talk about rebranding as Pod Bless America. But they were talking about the craziness. Uh, they were always talking about craziness, but the craziness they're talking about in particular was uh, how poor – our government's response to the the missile tests in North Korea was. The President Trump has spent a lot of time saying that the Japan does not pay us enough for the military. Um, they don't carry our stuff. They only carry our stuff half a mile instead of a mile. And that the issue with the military, te- the, the missile tests in stuff in North Korea is that the, the threat to the United States would be that if they could, because they have nuclear weapons, could they put a nuclear weapon on um, a missile that could reach the United States? Because uh, yeah. they can't do that yet, and that's the big threat. And they talked about how that could be the biggest threat to, to Trump, um, Trump's presidency, because he's just so ill-equipped. He hasn't talked about North Korea at all, right? The bigger issue, more pressing issue, is that they already have the ability to get a nuclear weapon to Japan with whose leader they, he was meeting with and didn't talk about North Korea. <laughs> Where we have this obligation, because we've, we've got this uh, other country who has heeded this advice, perhaps not on the friendliest of terms at the time, but an empire that is turning the other cheek so that we can live together and and be reconciled, which is a really miraculous story of uh, the United States and Japan over, we haven't even got to 100 years yet of how intensely horrible all that was. Um, Mm -hmm. And then one of us lays down the sword and we're able to be reconciled. um, And in that relationship, we have an obligation and a duty that we're not fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah. It's really extraordinary to me to be living through. I mean, I found myself just kind of dumbfounded because we've built all of these alliances um, after. I mean, this is all from like the post-war period, right? Because we were all at war with each other. This really terrifying apocalyptic time right in the mid 20th century. And we were like, man, this is a crazy way to live. Like, why don't we form some alliances and like a United Nations where like which is going to be terrible because it's a human creation, but at least we're not going to be killing each other. Like we'll just be having like debates with each other. Like that's probably better than killing each other. But now we've decided that that's all stupid and we're just going to retreat into our camps again and go to war with each other all over. Like it's not like it's never happened in human history. I just didn't think that I'd live through another cycle of that. (laughs) And I I, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to Tom Broke call greatest generation to hear too much. Right. (laughs) Right. But our two most important allies are Germany and Japan. <laughs> I don't know. I suppose we're moving to the end of our to the end of our time. But to, um, I think so. I guess if we talked about law or what I just renamed radical ethic, you can. That's coming from the vinyl preacher. I want to be cited when you all use that mm-hmm. in papers. Uh, if we're going to move to gospel, I'll coin a new term for that next week. Because you went law again. Uh, radical ethic. I think you just missed this. Yeah, radical. See, you said something about um, about being whole, and I think this closing line that Jesus has, where he says, "Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect." I mean, in I think in one sense we can hear that in despair because there's no way we're going to live up to that. Um, but I think translated maybe more accurately, uh, that that word for perfect can also be translated in the sense of wholeness, holiness, um, or wholeness, right? To be whole, and I think that. 
What we could say is that in our baptism, God remakes us, right? That God makes us whole and continually makes us, is remaking us um, and moving us toward wholeness in baptism. So it's almost like a blessing to say, be whole, you know, yeah. like that, that, and Jesus does say that, I think, to us, right? Like that's, that's one where maybe uh, Jesus breaks the, what is it, the third wall? The fourth wall? The fourth, yeah, wall. fourth wall. Breaks the fourth wall, looks at us and says, be whole, right, as your father in heaven. And that's, and that's what Jesus is doing for us as broken individuals. And hopefully that is hope for a world that is very broken as well. I like it. Holiness is whole. I'd like to do some. Did you do it? And I wasn't listening well enough. Uh, word study on what perfect is here. Ah, um, I can. Let me grab my. It was in a commentary because I'm not. I'm too lazy to actually do a word study from scratch. Taloy, complete in all its parts. Right? Mm-hmm. Does that sound better than perfect? I mean, like perfect sucks. Get it? But perfect seems to have more of a connotation of purity to me, at least in. Or our the second definition, according to Strong's, is full grown or a full age. Be full. I like yeah. that. Be full. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think like there's, there's, that's a really, I think that last line can be really rich if you kind of mm-hmm. work with that. If you get, if you dust off the, um, the sheen of perfect and get underneath it to some of those other definitions, I think there's, there's some real stuff to work with there. <sighs> it didn't yeah. work out, Matt. I was hoping that it would be the same word as uh, in the Beatitudes when the hungry and thirsty are filled, but it's not. <laughs> yeah. If yeah. only they let me write it. You can still you can still run with it though. I think so. I think so. We got English. So what are you gonna be listening to this week on your way to and from uh worship? Besides the Back to the Future theme song? Outside of the Back to the Future theme song. Is there a Back to the Future theme song? Yeah, it's by Huey Lewis in the news. We're loved. Dude, do says love your enemies? Yes. I'm gonna go with Huey Lewis in the news. Huey Lewis. I, I was well actually sick last year, and I rewatched all the Back to the Future movies. They're phenomenal. What happened to the third on. one? What happened to the third one? We're going to talk about that next week, because I disagree with you. I think that the Transfiguration is basically <laughs> Back to the Future 3. To be continued next week, podcast listeners. That's right. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Waylon Jenny's one voice. Uh, hit on some of that wholeness. Uh, one voice, it's this like all harmonizing song. I did, Matt, quick tangent, really enjoy the concert. Best dog shows I've been, show that I've been to. In particular, after the break, they came out and they harmonized over a couple tunes, uh, which was fantastic. Except for the drunk dog super fans behind me who wanted to continue singing incredibly loudly and obnoxiously. Uh, and they, they, they couldn't quite find their place in the harmony, and they weren't great singers. Uh, so I wanted to turn around and tell them to shut the hell up. But I didn't because I'm an introvert. Gosh, uh, Waylon Jennings, uh, great name, great band name. Excellent name. Just, I think it's fantastic. If only, I mean, that'd be a great pod name if we met any of that criteria. What else you got? A couple of different options. I don't know. I think I'm, uh, I think I'm going to throw out there. So uh, this singer, Al Jarreau, died over the weekend. Mm. And I was not, uh, I wasn't like super familiar with his work, but no. then, you know, you know, there's always a Spotify playlist. Uh, and he's got a, he's got a song called We're In This Love Together, which I think once you hear it, you'll be like, oh yeah, yeah, that song. And that's actually, uh, I think that's actually a good, 
a good line for today's uh, for today's gospel reading. Mm. This idea that we're we're in this thing together. Man, that makes me want to want to choose the old Crow Medicine show. Uh, we're all in this thing together. <laughs> yes. Um, walk the line between faith and fear. It's a really good yeah. one. We'll stick it on the on the playlist. But I'm going to go with uh, I found a, a band of horses song called Neighbor. One to hit the neighbor. Uh, yes. Right. Every house not a home, but yes. dare do I roam? There's a light on the porch here for someone. Yes, a song called Neighbor. Can I add one more? Yeah. Bonus, bonus track. Oh. Uh, Next I'm week we're going to be like, what, what do we put on the... We used yeah. all the songs I wanted to use. I know. But I'm actually... I actually think I'm going to start my sermon with uh, with this song, and that's uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor mm. by Mr. Rogers. Of course. By Mr. Rogers. Because I'm finding my... I don't know about you, but I'm finding myself uh, singing songs uh, to my... To my infants now. I actually started uh, singing that to her this week. <laughs> right? And I haven't thought about Mr. Rogers in a long time. Like, in a long time. It's just not something. Mostly I just I just do the Snopes thing to find out whether it's true that he was a, a assassin who was also, like, a Presbyterian minister. Right? So, um, yeah. I'm actually going to use that because I think that I think the congregation will enjoy it. And then I think it'll allow me to do some interesting things around neighbors. Good playlist. Good I like playlist. it. I like it. Did I ever tell you about my idea for a Saturday Night Live sketch involving Mr. Rogers? No. So here we go. Here's what we need to have happen. First, we need a sound machine. We need to go to 1996. Okay? We're there. Excellent. Sandra Bullock is hosting Saturday Night Live. We go to Mr. Rogers' house, and we go to the land of make-believe, and it turns out there's a bomb on the trolley, (laughs) and the trolley can't stop. <laughs> oh no! Fortunately, we have Keanu Reeves or Sandra Bullock, and either can host. That'd be a great 1996 sketch, right? Just, Damn. Yeah, just a couple years late. <laughs> couple years late. Matt, do you know what I'm gonna be doing this week? Next week? What? I'm gonna fire up an old burn CD I have, uh, and and say, "Hello, Seattle. Uh, I am a mountaineer <laughs> headed." Man, I wish I was going. I love Seattle. That's a great, it's a great city. It's a great little town. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Sad. I mean, sadly, I don't know. We're down. We're down. We're not in Seattle. Seattle. It's a nice little place on the Sound. Yeah. Still. Hopefully, they're running to to JT Burke. Is the plan? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. um, Cool. Try to harass some of our colleagues into being on the podcast. Yes. Yes. I will yes, get stopped in security for sure with this microphone. You can uh, visit the home of the Seattle Sounders, winners of the MLS Cup. The champs, man. The champs. Almost MLS. <laughs> Kick off here. All right. Mm-hmm. It's been real. Absolutely. Or should I say it's been vinyl.